You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Bishop C.L. Mitchell, along with Reverend John Corr and uh, Shepherdess Terry Dawson. And uh, we would like to um, thank uh, Jacob Barker, who is the president of 1280KXEG, The Trumpet, for allowing us to uh, come into your homes via radio uh, for both this week and next week uh, from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. in order to undertake what is a very important task, namely the textual celebration of uh, the Passion and Resurrection Week by means of an articulation and contemplation of the seven last statements of Christ on the cross. Uh, doing, during the last 15 minutes of this broadcast or so, it is our goal to entertain questions uh, that have either been called in or text in uh, via the number that I will give to you in just a moment. Uh, that will be questions on the first uh, three statements of Christ on the cross. Uh, if you would like to ask questions at that time, or if you would like to enter your questions, you may call or text 602-422-6490. Again, 602-422-6490. John and I have been friends for a long time, and we've had the opportunity uh, practically every week, I would say, John, uh, to meet uh, at a private coffee shop and discuss the Word of God together. Yes, yes. And and that's really our goal today, to uh, give some exegetical consideration to the text and to the history of this profound event. But what's more, to give devotional contemplation to it uh, in a way that I pray will not only glorify God, but also edify our listeners. Amen, amen. I think we'll begin with uh, the first statement in Luke 23. And while the statement is particularly located in verse 34, rather, I think I will begin by reading verse 33 and 34, and then, John, you can start us off in our discussion. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, particularly the reference, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, when you think about all of history, the, 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 the fall of man, which started at a tree in Genesis, is now brought back to another tree here at the crucifixion of Christ. And whereas the tree that sent mankind into separation from God, man is now brought back into fellowship with God 
be a, a tree of the cross. And what's amazing to me is, is uh, um, the very first statement that Jesus says on the cross is not a statement of vengeance. It's not a statement of um, even concern for his family. It's a concern for his, for these enemies that have put him there. And as, as we discuss these sayings, um, what's going to be amazing, and as we'll, we'll bring it out, is the, the depths of Christ's love, the, the depths and the, the ends of Christ's love. It's as, as if the, the enemies would push him to the limit, and he says, no, even to this point, I still am going to have concern for even my own enemies. I mean, this is so contrary than that the way the world listens or, or, or works or thinks. It's, it's, a, it's very contrary to how we naturally would think. If um, This is God himself taking um, our place on the cross. And today, of all days, today, Good Friday, um, this whole weekend, is the most important event of all of human history. We celebrate this, uh, this the crucifixion of Christ and later on Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. Without these two events, we would have no hope of any fellowship or communion with God. And so the, everything of Christ's life leads to this point. He says, for this reason, I was brought into the world. So, You know, I, I, I appreciate, John, that you said that there is the allusion to the tree in the Garden of Eden because it argues that history, while it may be forgotten by us, is never forgotten by God. That's right. And it is not inconsequential to God. Right. And the problems of man are revisited by the answers provided by God. And that's exactly what you see here, that that event that would have seemed by first century to have been a long ago event, event uh, is suddenly remembered through uh, textual illusion, through theological illusion, illusion, and is revisited by the very Son of God, who makes good on what we refer to as the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel message. And so... Um, um, that that is would be from Genesis chapter 3. That's correct. Right. That's correct. I, you know, I... When I look at this statement, um, breath on the cross was a commodity, right? Uh, you look at the event wherein you have the medial nerves pierced through the wrists, the medial nerve pierced through the feet, and you have this excruciating pain, let alone to say the disposition of Christ, who would have, um, uh, who would have been experiencing um, hemohydrosis in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. That means he's, bre- he's bleeding out blood through his sweat glands right and and he is uh, hypothermic and his tongue is swelling his last meal was at the uh, Lord's Supper right and uh, he has endured a horrendous beating and he has carried the cross on the Via della Rosa the way of the cross and uh, he has gone through countless tragedies and travesties uh, to point I have to confess that my first thought, my first words, my first ideas would not be ideas of forgiveness no. toward anyone. No. In fact, my first thought would be <laughs> the thoughts of, I can't wait to get them back. 
you know, this, that's the human way of thinking. You know, if you, if you get hurt by somebody, it's very difficult to immediately transition to, I'm com- to forgiving that person. You want to naturally think and wa- wallow and process that pain. You know, if you've been hurt by somebody, um, it's, it's not an immediate thing to say, I forgive this person. It's, it's, it takes us time. You know, husbands and wives, they argue. Fathers and children, they argue. And friends argue and, and things happen. And it often takes time. There's often hurt. But here's Christ who is who has been rejected by everybody. I mean, the, the shame the, the shame of dying on the cross. The Romans, um, the Romans couldn't die on the cross unless Caesar himself said, I would com- uh, that he would commission somebody to die. The Jews obviously thought it was against uh, it was against the law to or was the bad thing to, to die on the cross. They had to die outside the city. This was a shameful act. Let's just put it this way: a shame, shameful event. But for Christ to his very first words to be Father, forgive them. Yes. I mean, here's a man who is experiencing excruciating pain, and his very thought, even to the end is one of concern for his enemies. He, he, is, he, is, he is, in fact, what strike me is, strikes me is he is not able to touch and bless people the way he once did. He's not able to walk to places and, and, and visit people as he once did. He's barely enough, have enough voice in him to teach as he once did, but he has enough in him to pray. And that's what's significant to me is, is that, is that, at the very end, he even prays that there's hope for his enemies, that perhaps even his own enemies would 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 believe, or he would show grace to them. Um, you know, as I as I consider this entire event, as I said, uh, breath on the cross is a commodity. You had to. You had to uh, flex your legs, stretch them. And in order to lift yourself, in order to breathe, because the art of crucifixion was intended, the motive was suffering, but the art of death was finally realized through asphyxiation, through a loss of breath. And so um, in order for you to breathe, literally, in order to continue to live, you had to um, stretch your legs which with a shredded back, you would have to uh, uh, engage against splinter, engage against pain. So, so this, just to interject here, because and this is kind of how we how we talk to one another is Absolutely. we inter- we um, his what you're in one sense the pain of, of the crucifixion of itself. Your your mind is on so much on that. I may be getting some relief each time he's trying to breathe. He's pushing up on his nail-pierced feet, but yet he feels the scraping on his back, and yet right. yet he has enough strength to to pray. I mean, I, naturally, we would be thinking, give me out of this pain. Right, or, or we would be thinking, where is God, or I blame God. I mean, the, the later statement, Eloi, Eloi, Lamna Sabatni, yes. my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Aramaic? Why doesn't he say that first? Right. Um, what's more, if you have a lack of breath, I'm particularly interested in verse 34a, but Jesus was saying it's in the imperfect active indicative tense, okay, which, simply, English means. <laughs> which simply suggests this. It's a continual past tense 
arguing that there was some continuity in his statement. So he was he was saying over and over again, or yes. to the point of he kept saying, or he was repeatedly saying. Is that what you're saying? Th- that's the argument that that Jesus is spending his precious breath to intercede, and this intercession is not coming from a person who's in a living room hurt or in a vehicle insulted or, or, or any other circumstance of the like. It's coming from one of the most, if not the most, painful means of death. So painful, in fact, that we have more information historically about the nature of the cross collected in the four Gospels than we have in all extra-biblical literature put together. So painful that there was, in fact, no word to describe the agony thereof to the degree that a word was invented, excruciating. It literally means what comes out of the cross. And so here is Jesus using this very moment to engage in intercession continuously in a high priestly manner for his enemy. And you know, the whole, this is one thing that we have to point out is he's there willingly. He says, no, no man takes my life from, from me. I lay it down. You know, he, he actually, from his, in fact, from his birth, early on, he was pursued by the enemies. His family had to flee to Egypt. And early in his ministry, um, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to throw him off the cliff. His enemies tried to trap him. They tried to kill him. They tried... Every single time, of course, they couldn't. He is there willingly. He is, he is going to the cross. He is there. And if he had one thought, Father, take me down, it would have been done. The fact that his thoughts aren't on his own self-preservation, but are on the preservation of somebody else, namely his enemies at this point, the very first statement about, Father, forgive them. Now, that tells me something about... about um, his, the hope for, for people maybe who are so against Christ. Hmm. You think about those who are maybe mad at God or angry at God or somehow away from God, and yet Christ still intercedes for them, that perhaps they would receive, even when Judas, his, one of his own disciples, was betraying him. He's his friend. He calls him friend. Right. He actually sits Judas at the seat of honor at the Last Supper. And so it, just the the overwhelming it's it's as if you know for, for human being we we normally have a limit to how much we will take right okay that's far enough that's enough i've reached my limit right we've said that he has no limit he 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 died still expressing that love and that grace which tells me that let me tells you too that there that that whatever we may have done in life we may have been the very people that have cast insults of Christ. We may have been the one next to him casting slurs against him and crying, crucify, crucify. And yet Christ still prays for us. I mean, that's just, that boggles my mind. Father, forgive them. They it, don't know what they do. It really does. I, I also think it's particularly important to, to reminisce canonically, that is, over the framework of the Scripture. Because, I, I like the big use of words you have there. <laughs> <laughs> because in, in, um, in the Torah, 
um, uh, we have this lex talionis, which is um, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Right. But the lex talionis was not um, a personal vendetta to be carried out as um, uh, as an individual would, almost like a vigilante. No, uh, it was to be carried out within the framework of jurisprudence or by oversight of the judge or oversight of the priest. Um, and so it was not to be done um, uh, in retaliation. Uh, when you look at the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, the Hebrew Scriptures, what you see in the writings are a constancy of imprecatory prayers, which is God the Psalter. Right. Yes, uh, uh, Lord call down a curse on this person, break their bones, dash their teeth. Um, uh, when, when you look in the framework of uh, the transitional gospels, Peter says, Lord, how many times can a person do wrong to me? Right. And I have to forgive them. And, and here's my statement as a result of that canonical view or that overview of scripture. It is this, namely, this is completely contradistinctive or opposite to human characteristic and capacity. I mean, nobody invents this kind of, this kind of attitude. Nobody, this does not come humanly. A human being did not invent this. Absolutely. This is so contrary to, it's like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, endures all things, right? Um, I think of the, of the, um, the scripture in Isaiah 53, Mm. 700 or so years before this, Describing the suffering servant that Christ uh, is now, uh, as we look at the text, fulfilling. It says at the very last verse of that chapter, it says, And yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Right. I just, just contemplate on that and just thinking about his intercession for those of us who maybe weren't, we weren't there physically 2,000 years ago. But we what might have been among the ones who said, crucify him. And yet at some point, um, there are those who, who were there that later on received forgiveness from God and repented. Yeah, I think it's quite profound that here's the rabbi who has been known as an itinerant preacher for the last three and a half years. And what he has taught is that you are to love your enemies You are to pray for them. You are to do well toward them. And if, in fact, he were going to be contradictory, now is that moment. Right. But he stays consistent with not only the Torah, but also with his teaching. His own teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, that it's as if to say, if the ultimate test of whether Christ is going to live up to his very words... This is now the time for him to renege on that. Absolutely. And he doesn't. Absolutely. And because of that, we're, we're wherever, and, and especially if you're one who's away from God, and you realize that, that Christ himself even prays for you to repent and to, and, to follow, and to follow him and to see the kind of love that he has for you. He says, Father, forgive, forgive them. They don't know what they do. We can get into absolutely. You know, I mean, you could spend weeks and weeks on this. Just this one verse alone. You know, I think that this is particularly Christian in that the Apostle Paul in Romans twelve fourteen says, "Bless, bless, and do not curse those who do wrong toward you." Is his idea, and here's this concept. This is. 
Christ. This is Christ-like. This is not the imagination or the machination of any other religious concept right. of any other individual, uh, other religion, other concepts may say, um, uh, you know, we are waiting until they get theirs or karma or what goes around comes around. But that's not the anticipation. That's not the nature no. of the prayer here. The prayer no. here is particularly Christian in that Jesus is praying for not their wrath, but God's mercy upon them. And what he means by this phrase, forgive them, is not salvific in nature. He's not suggesting I am giving them a pass uh, uh, soteriologically or by means of their sins being washed away. No, obviously he he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, obviously they knew they were crucifying somebody. They knew that they had put a man on the cross that they had cast insults. But what he's referring to is they don't know the enormity the depths, the weightiness of what their act is. They are guilty of a level of cosmic treason in the words of R.C. Sproul. This is cosmic assault against the one who said, let there be. Right. While they are attempting to kill him, he is the one, according to Colossians, who is sustaining he, their very he, breath. He is holding the atoms in their body together. That's a he is holding creation itself together. All the while, they're crucifying him. Now, here, here's a question. I know this is, we can digress a little bit. How, how, how do you forgive somebody that has hurt you so deeply? I mean, that's, that's easy to talk about Jesus forgiving and he's God. I'm not God. When you have somebody perhaps in life that has hurt you deeply and I mean, most of us would say, no, I want them to hurt the way I hurt. Suffer. I want them to suffer because I suffered. I mean, how does, how does this transition to here, 2015? Or John, if they didn't want them to suffer, they would be apathetic. I simply don't care what happens to them, either good or bad, but that's not Jesus. Right. Jesus gives greatest concern toward them in the moment of their violation. Well, we just, I think we sort of alluded to the fact that this whole, his whole attitude, his whole demonstration is not natural. Absolutely. It's not something that comes naturally. Forgiveness itself is not something that comes naturally. This kind of forgiveness, the, how, how most people, a lot of people would define forgiveness, it's not this. This is supernatural. And for the, the believer, it also has to be supernatural as well. It has to be God-given. And I think therein is the answer to your question, namely, in order for a person to have this as his or her thought, in order for a person to be consistent with and thereby non-contradictory with the Christ of Christianity and with the Christ-likeness that is derived therefrom, it demands an every moment dependence upon and surrender to the person and work of the Holy Spirit who comes to give us alien or foreign empowerment yes. to do what as as Christians or as people we are completely and absolutely incapable of doing. You know, I, I was, was thinking about this and, and oftentimes the attitude of forgiveness when we often withhold or don't forgive somebody of some great offense against us, mm-hmm. we think we're doing them damage. And the reality is when we do not forgive somebody, it damages us in, 
in worse ways. That forgiveness itself is as much a blessing for the one that's giving it as it is to the one who's receiving it as well. And John, again, stressing his mobility up and down the cross, right. he was forgiving them and interceding for them whilst in the wake of great pain. Now, this bring, and obviously we can discuss this, just this first point for weeks and weeks and weeks. But I think it's interesting, just his whole, his whole attitude, his everything he's doing probably led to the statement of, our, of the second um, word of Christ, and that is the, the conversion of one of the thieves on the cross, where he says, um, you know, Jesus, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right. In fact, um, one of the gospels says that early on, both thieves were railing against, railing against him. Right. Obviously, one of the thieves had a change of heart. Um, as he's on the cross, as he is just he is dying deservingly for 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 offense, he's observing something about Christ that that hits him, and he realizes this this is not an ordinary man. And he says to to Jesus, Jesus. He didn't say Lord. He calls him by name. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know. That particular incident is recorded in the same chapter, chapter 23. I think I'll begin reading it in verse number 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, verse 43. And he said, that is Jesus, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Uh, Here's an interesting thing, John, because according to the Gospels, um, one particular gospel, uh, uh, the thieves again are are spewing out insults toward him. Right. While contemporaneous with that, Jesus is gathering the breath to say, "Father, forgive them." This guy, both of these guys that are on either side of Jesus, whose tongues are swelled as his are, who are lacking water, who are lacking nourishment, who are going through agony, they're spinning their last breaths insulting him. One of them hears Jesus spinning his last breaths, praying for an interceding, and it brings about a work of the Spirit through a painstaking testimony to such a degree right. that this man is brought to a place of, of saying, and, and it's in the same tense, an imperfect, active, indicative. Jesus is constantly saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he starts to repetitively say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, right. remember me. Here's what's amazing to me as, as we're just thinking about this. This man was on his deathbed. This man was, there's nothing else this man can do in life. I mean, he's on his last hours of life. He knows it's coming soon. He has been punished. He has been, rightfully so. And yet, there was hope for him. God had ordained for him to be crucified next to his own son Mm -hmm. so that he can observe and hear even in his last moments and have a chance of believing what he does. I mean, it tells me that there are people that you may know that you may feel are way off the deep end or, or 
a way uh, and impossible for God to reach. But if the thief on the cross could have salvation and have the, the Son of God reveal himself to him, nobody is that far out of the hand and reach of God. You, you know, I, I consider these two statements and a thought comes to mind that although you have various words for sin in scripture, you have two very broad categories of sin. Right. And you have forensic or legal sin, and then you have historic sin. And interestingly enough, Jesus speaks directly to the motive behind the activity. He says, for they do not know what they're doing. Right. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And he is particularly referring to this act that led him to the cross and this act that is being committed upon him or the acts as he is upon the cross. And while he can forgive them of the forensic sin, it cannot be undone historically the violation that they've committed against him. This sinner is on the cross and he recognizes that and he says to the other thief, he, he takes the position of a defender and he says, we're here because we deserve to be. Right, right. But he is innocent. And I think no, he, this is, a, hold on, hold on. I'm just to interject. That's just what you just said. We are here because we deserve this, right? Without that realization, no one can come to Christ. You think about it, he is surrounded, Christ is surrounded by people who are casting insults at him. The Romans are there. Uh, Jewish leaders are there. His followers are at a distance watch, watching. His mom's there. there. He's surrounded by people that are maybe indifferent or part of the process of, of, of crucifying him. And yet, very few of them come to, to faith at, at that point. The Roman centurion comes to faith as he, see, he says, surely this man was the son of God. The thief on the cross next to him. But when the thief on the cross next to him uh, says to the other thief, hey, we are, we're being punished because we deserve this. That brings out the, the, the point that no one can come to, to God unless he's reached the point where he can't rely on his own efforts anymore. In other words, here's the thief on the cross nailed and there isn't anything he can do to contribute to the equation. He can't get down and, and perform some meritorious ceremony. He, he, can barely, he, can't, he can barely talk himself. And his own words are enough to, to save him. His own faith is, own, is enough to save him. But that change of heart is because he recognizes his own need for that Savior. And, and a lot of people... Um, well, nobody can come to Christ unless they recognize their own, their own need. Let's talk about the, um, the, the idea that, you know, a lot of times we may think um, salvation is earned. Or, you know, God only uh, approves of me when, I, when I'm good enough. And here's this thief who is, there's nothing he can do. It's grace alone that has saved him. And he's literally on his deathbed, and he has a deathbed conversion, and Christ says, you'll be with me in paradise today. You know, John, we should take the question beyond that, because let us say that he were not on the cross. What would be the means of salvation then? Right. Well, that's my, my point, is that if he weren't on the cross, then somebody might say, well... 
go and do this, that, and the other, and then you'll be saved. Which was interesting is that when I look at uh, scriptures like Luke 15, the, the story of the prodigal son, the very, very first verse um, in that chapter talks about how the leaders um, didn't like the fact that Jesus accepted sinners. Uh, in fact, he said, they say, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to uh, him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's, he is doing the same thing here. He is receiving a sinner who has recognized their own sin. And he is their savior. And whether a person thinks they have um, committed um, good deeds or not, they recognize that they are in need of a savior. And there's nothing meritoriously that they can do to earn that is entirely of God's grace. Craig S. Keener um, says that most of the individuals who are on their way to crucifixion would either on the road to crucifixion or in the event of crucifixion begin to confess their sins. Mm. He notes then that Jesus is opposite of that in that he is confessing the sins of the others. Mm. Father, forgive them. Yes. And his confession of the sins of others then brings about the confession of this thief's sin, who, by the way, was not simply a sinner because of his thievery, but was a sin by nature who expressed symptomatically his sin in thievery and who knows what else. But Jesus um, says to him, this, this, this man who is constantly saying, remember me. And, and I think it's interesting as, as a Jew, uh, this man is now in a very Torah specific way, um, in the words of Bruce Walkie, being remembered, reconnected to covenantal Abrahamic promises. Right. But then he asks Jesus to remember him, reconnect me in a way that it will have results and implications right. in eternity. Right. And, and to look at this man who begins to make this moment a moment of faith alone in Christ alone is not in fact due to the urgency of this moment only. But had he been walking free, it would have been the very same way Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. Right. Um, um, when we get to the New Testament, uh, uh, baptism and other um, attestations to the salvific grace of God do not become the means and measure of our salvation, but they become an attestation or a testimony to the world of an inner work and conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit in order to bring us to the place of faith in the object, namely See, Jesus Christ. Th and the fact that he is, he is coming to Christ while nailed to a cross, he's helpless, so to speak. Yes. I mean, if, 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 as if, if he is demonstrating faith that Abraham, I mean, I'd be, he's now he's helpless before God. He's actually at God's mercy. I mean, that's, there's, there's a point where, and where everyone who comes to Christ has come to that point where they, they, they understand how helpless they are. Right. Before God. I, every, there's nothing I can do, God, to save myself. I am nailed to a cross. I can imagine being, on, being that thief on the cross and realizing, even if I wanted to, 
offer sacrifice or do some works of, of penance of some sort. I couldn't. I am nailed to a cross. I am, I am at the mercy of you, God. And yet that's the point where God brings this man. That's the point where this man has to be is helpless before God so that he can be receptive to the mercy of God. And what does God do to relieve his sorrow? Yes. He does, he does not sit there and say, you vile sinner. It's about time that you recognize the horrendousness of your state and nature and your deserving of the judgment of God, let alone the discipline of these Romans. He doesn't do that. He says today. Yes. You know, and what's interesting, it follows with Christ's other teaching of like the prodigal son. The person who comes to Christ, God doesn't go to that person and say, well, since you have done X, Y, and Z, you're going to be in my doghouse for a while. And when you are good enough, then you'll get to come out. No, no, no. He doesn't do that. We, didn't, we, would, not, you know, we would do that with our kids or with, with, with somebody that offended us and make them climb the ladder to try to earn uh, their approval to us. But he he has no possibility of of, of the, uh, the the thief has no possibility of of doing that and yet god doesn't hold him to that standard he says today you'll be with me in paradise which means you're just as saved as my own disciple down here john yes my own disciple peter who's probably watching in the distance you know after he's denied me a few times you're just as saved as my servant abraham and we look at the humanly and think, well, that's not fair, God. You know, here, Abraham was so faithful to you all these years, and here's this thief on the cross, and he gets to go in at the last moment. That's not fair. But it has nothing to do with what we contribute. We don't contribute to the equation. We get to participate in the benefits of it. But it's all entirely of God's grace, and he gets more glory in that. And this is so contrary to what way we want to think. It's contrary to the way we want to approach even love, it is so unconditional. Um, in fact, in the text, Jesus adopts legal language. Yes. Um, again, according to Craig S. Keener, um, um, it was possible. Great author, by the way. Oh, he really is. He's an extraordinary scholar. And, and Dr. Keener says this. He says that um, um, it was very possible and probable. In fact, it was understood that an individual could actually make legal last statements while on the cross right and they could speak to the care of a loved one they could speak to last will and testament and things of that nature and here jesus adopts nothing less than legal language in saying truly i say to you today you will be with me in paradise which again raises another question because for those who over the years have taught that there was a three-day pausation that was necessary in order to finish the wrath of god what you're saying is that christ had to go to hell to pay more more debt absolutely and this text along with others in the very same seven statements would deny that right because if jesus meant that he was going to go to hell he should have said Three days from hence, you right. will be with me in paradise. Right. Or he should have said, uh, Father, I will commit my hand, my spirit into your hands three days from now. Right. But that's not what I'll he I'll see says. you in three days, Father. Which argues something. This man's life was a life of sin, but this moment of grace Amen. was so significant that it was able to not historically undo the vileness of his life, 
but forensically, legally before the Father, undo it in such a way that upon taking his last breath on the cross, he could endure and bear the eternal rewards that were courtesy of the efficacious or the effective work of Jesus. And so putting these two statements together, John, um, the first statement, Father, forgive them in this statement, you asked an applicational question earlier and you said, how can we do this? Right. Listen, for every person who has been wounded by people, your answer is not in revenge, it's in intercession. That brings up, that's a great point because you may never feel like this person deserves forgiveness. Right. You may feel like, and that this person, you know, you may be waiting to until you're blue in the face until they change and you can then forgive them. Christ says, no, you, you pray for them. Prayer is going to do something supernaturally that, that your withholding of love can never do. And John, while you are exemplifying the Christ-like character in intercession, here's an interesting thing. The thief on the cross wasn't crucifying Jesus. I mean, Jesus was there as a result of his sins as well. Right. But Christ's consistency and testimony served as such a witness during his pain and suffering that the Holy Spirit used it to work salvational grace in this man's heart and mind. My statement is, sometimes we have a very short-sighted vision on what God is doing in the midst of our own sufferings. And if we will simply trust Him by faith, interceding with a forgiving heart, and looking for an opportunity for the Father to cause the kingdom to be realized in someone's life, the people that we're praying for may not necessarily immediately be affected by what we are praying, right. but there may be onlookers who will say to us, perchance, I've seen you retain your passion for Christ amidst your suffering, and it has caused me to ask, what must I do to be saved? Right. What is different about this person, this believer who is going through his... I, I think of some good friends who have endured great tragedy in life and God has brought them through and and they have been committed to, to God through this, through the tragedies they face and the trials and I and I am awestruck at that I don't know if I personally could, could have done that, what they have done but their example of love and a prayer and devotion to God is strengthens my faith absolutely and I and I and I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the the thief on the cross is a changed man because of what he sees. Just in the very short period of time, he has seen Christ. How he's handled the, the, the suffering, which begs the question: Will others be changed, right, as a result of what they see in us, right, when we are bleeding on our own cross, right? Yeah. The third statement, John, is recorded in the Gospel of John chapter number 19 and uh, it's in verses uh, 26 and 27 Mm. namely verse 26 when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to his mother woman behold your son then he said 
to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own house. Mm. I, you know, I just was thinking about this. Um, here's his mom, who has been his, in his life, obviously, since, since, since the conception, since the announcement of he's, they, she's carrying this child. And the, the prophecy that is given to her about Jesus, how, what kind of man he would be and how um, he would be the savior. And she has grown up to watch her son grow and to become obviously the Messiah and to have to watch her own son suffer the way he, that she's uh, watching him suffer and to endure what he's enduring, knowing all the while that he had to do this um, I, I'm I'm amazed that she's even even there. I'm amazed that she's even bearing this and watching this. She is she is obviously his mom, but she's also his child in a sense that that she that that's that's her savior as well. Absolutely. And I can't imagine the emotions that are going through uh, her mind uh, as she, as her son is suffering the way the way he is. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth for his word is truth.